Drive-by Cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome. This is Season 2, Episode 32 of Drive-by Cinema. I'm Rick, and here's my co-host, your co-host, Paul. Uh, welcome, everybody, to, to today's the podcast where we watch movies so you don't have to. And movies that maybe you don't want to either. The Sisyphean task of slowly watching <laughs> every movie in existence and classifying it in an arbitrary number of categories, rating yeah. categories. Yeah. As if anyone cares about our opinion. Not Including sure. ourselves. <laughs> we have achieved some sort of de-egotistical de- nirvana, I think. Hey, it's the end of Kermode and... Uh, what's the other guy called? What's the DJ who does it with him? I don't know what you're talking about. You know, Mark Kermode and... Am I supposed to know uh, what this is? They're on Radio 2 or whatever, aren't they? They're always reviewing movies. Oh. It's been, it's been long-running ra- ra- BBC Radio movie reviews with Mark Kermode and Simon... Simon Mayo. Simon Mayo, yeah. He's all over the place. He's on Greatest Hits, too. He's a condiment more than a person. <laughs> so now's our chance, Paul. Now we can we can take the mantle from them, as it were. Absolutely. Build our own house of media. I'm sure I forgot a lot of things, particularly about about the movies we've watched recently. Probably for the best, I imagine. It, it's maybe, you know, some protective mechanism of your brain kicking in here. I'll tell you something we haven't discussed on the podcast, Paul, perhaps with good reason. We, we haven't discussed the fibre challenge. No, we haven't. And, and, and I've been on and off with it, though I have been sort of self-monitoring to an extent. The fibre challenge being our attempts to hit recommended daily values for fibre intake, or roughage as it used to be called, which I think is a better word for it. Roughage. It sounds kind of knockabout, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Roughage is a nice word. Yeah, so I've been puzzling over the government's recommended daily 30 amount. 30 grams. And I assume for somebody my size, 35 or 40. I think that's quite a lot of fibre. It's quite a lot of fibre. I mean, even even if you're talking about things that have a lot of fibre, i.e. 5 grams per 100 gram of foodstuff, we're talking about... a. A quite prodigious amount of food intake, aren't we? We're talking several kilograms to achieve that goal. Now, so I was sort of assuming it was like one of those aspirational things, a goal that they put out there, but, yeah. you know, no one's really expected to reach it. Like the five pieces of fruit a week or whatever it is. Yeah. Or like, you know, a grade eight at GCSE music or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, you see... As you proved when we started this, I mean, you can eat 30 grams of fibre if, yeah, yeah. if you're prepared to eat 5,000 calories, you know. You can get there, yeah. Yeah. But if you want to stick to a normal human being's diet and not eat, like, floor matting as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Then it's quite it's quite difficult to do. And you'd think, for instance, you might go down the aisle of the supermarket and think, oh, bran flakes, ideal. <laughs> so you grab some bran flakes. Sugar. What you'll find is... Packed with sugar, yeah. If you will get fat before you've eaten your your roughage, if you're eating if you're eating bran flakes. Same with muesli and granola and all that grainy stuff. 
However, can I just interject here? I mean, fiber doesn't really enter your system, so it's carbohydrate. It doesn't count as any kind of sugar. But I think the classification of sugar as being completely different to other carbohydrates is a little false. I mean, once carbohydrates enter your system, they enter as glucose anyway, don't they, essentially? Uh, well, that's my understanding, but my understanding is not great in this in this area. I think, you know, we, when they talk about simple sugars, it's the speed that they enter your, your bloodstream that does the damage. However, that's not to say that, you know, eating other forms of carbohydrate won't increase your glucose levels over a sustained period. So, I mean, so, yeah. Paul, if you eat fat, if you eat a lot of fatty food, you might get fat. But it's not the same fat that you eat, is it? I mean, you don't have like cow fat in you. If you eat a load of beef dripping. No, no, I mean. Otherwise, you know, if someone did a DNA thing of you, they'd go, that's strange. You know, this guy's like 5% cow. (laughs) Conclusion of the fibre challenge, though, Paul, is I was surprised at how you can reach 30 grams a day with some surprising foods. Like chilli con carne, packed with beans, isn't it? So you get a load of fibre. Indeed, yes, yes. And fish and chips also. Yeah, but that's 2,000 calories. Boom, straight away. It is, yeah. yeah. Well, more if you have a buttered bap with it, as I normally do. So. Crisps are high in fibre per gram, but you just don't eat that. You know, you hopefully you don't eat like a kilogram of crisps, so you can't, probably can't do it. And you're also a lot of salt there as well, isn't there? So, yeah, I found that I was doing comfortably 20 grams if I tried and well, 20 grams was the original recommendation about 10 or 15 be, years yeah. ago yeah yeah it seems to me though that this is a good proxy for healthy eating in general i think if you put enough thought into getting 20 or 30 grams of fiber by default you're probably, yeah you're d- doing fine with your other macros aren't you we have to be yeah yeah i mean you have to be if you're eating the kind of foods that contain that kind of fiber you're probably going to be doing okay on your micros too Bound to be, because you're going to have to have had some kind of veg, aren't you? Leaky veg. Unless you go, unless you go industrial on your fibre intake and go for the old ah. meta, Metamucil. Yeah, okay, so this is a form of cheating. I'm not saying it should be ruled out, oh. but you still have to have quite a lot of it, because are we talking powder or capsules here? Yeah, powder. You've put it in your smoothies and that kind of thing, you can't taste it. So, uh, like, if you, if you do the protein powder for the gym or whatever, it, I mean... You're just asking for constipation, aren't you, if you do a lot of that? So often <laughs> often gym rats will pop in the Metamucil into their mix. And yeah, but you've got to be careful. Like I, I do remember when I was a gym goer by 2008, 2009, I think I just went overboard on the Metamucil and it's it's immediate lavatory runs. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's just, <laughs> I think you could probably dehydrate yourself to death with the amount, you know, <laughs> with the amount of... Uh, Amount of sewage that you pass, you know. Anyway, enough of this. Uh, enough of this shit. <laughs> Nobody's interested in. Yeah. Apart from us that could selves. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Do we have anything to discuss about movies? What we watched previously? Possibly, possibly not. We we did skip over something with Batman, but we'll come back to that. I think in the oh, next okay. episode. Let's summon the music and move on. All right now. This is Lars von Trier, Paul. Yes, it is Lars von Trier. We've met him before in Dogville. 
And you were not a fan. I wouldn't say not a fan. I, I, I just found it. I, I hesitate to use the words pretentious. However, it possibly fits the bill. I think in respect to to Dogville. If the listener has had enough dietary information and fibre updates, then to cut it short, you could stop the podcast right now and say, this is better than Dogville. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this isn't a... Well, it's pretentious in moments, but I mean, it's purposefully pretentious. I mean, I don't mind the fact that uh, Virgil, the poet, appears uh, (laughs) throughout the movie and Dante's Nine Circles of Hell. I mean... uh, we can imagine that going on in the mind of Jack, who is the lead character in this movie. So, so yeah, I mean, it's it's artfully constructed, but not obtrusively so. So, how do we start the description of this movie? Do I say, do I say Jack is an architect, or do I say yes, Jack you is do. a serial killer? Well, I think you say that Jack is a failed architect who then becomes a serial killer. Doesn't he say he's an engineer? but wants to be an architect or something along those lines. Well, I mean, he has a dumb girlfriend and he actually poses this question, doesn't he? What is the difference between an architect and an engineer? And what does she say? She says they both draw houses. <laughs> and and then he dips into one of his strange kind of extended analogies, which is like the area of his personality that I really respect. He's quite good at sort of drawing out these quite abstract and abstruse justifications for his behaviour through references to higher principles. Uh, and I'm not sure what he says. He kind of like he says something like, you know, an, an engineer sing, an engineer listens to the opera, and an architect sings the opera, or something like that. Which he doesn't get, but I think the rest of us do get because I mean, she is genuinely quite dumb. Architecture is a subject that you have to study a long time for because it combines... Five years at university. Yeah. And I suppose that's because it combines the science and engineering of, you know, how big a beam you need. Yes. With, like, the the art history of how to make a building. Oh, I was going to say the art history of ugly curved surfaces. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah, so you're in the, as we all know... (laughs) I'm in the Prince Charles camp. No, I'm not in the Prince Charles camp. But for Richard's satisfaction... (laughs) For Richard's satisfaction, I will occupy the vernacular corner. But what would you you rather have in a public space like Piccadilly Gardens, Bob? Would you you rather have like... Negative concrete space. Absolutely, Richard. Yeah, I agree with you completely. You You want a completely flat parade ground like North Korea. So we can, you know, the tanks can... March up and down on it. Is that what you're after? We can have wide games with people dressed or, in... Or piss-stained concrete blocks like the front cover of a seminal Who album. I don't know, Richard. <laughs> Maybe, like most people, I'd want some sunken gardens and some pretty flowers, you know. And, and some <laughs> attractive gardens. communal space where people can behave in a civil manner to each other. I know it's conformist. I know it's social engineering. I know it's manufacture <laughs> of... Implied consent and content, but whatever. Just the thing about architecture is that it's an art form. If you, if it is an art form, it's an art form that everyone has a goddamn opinion about. Yeah, I suppose it's like people with school. Well, like people with education. Everyone thinks they're educationalists because everyone went to school, uh, and that apparently qualifies them to comment on you know modern educational techniques. Similarly, everyone has lived in a house goes to work in an office 
And so they all think that they're experts in architecture. Perhaps actually not wrongly, because, you know, an architect spends, you know, a few months designing something. We have to spend all of our lives living and working in it, don't we? Yes. The building that I live in has leaks everywhere. Does it? It's got an enormous It's award-winning, though, isn't it? I don't know about award-winning. It's It's got Damien Hurst on the wall, hasn't it? They actually took them down because someone started to steal the Damien Hurst. <laughs> it took the Mancunians 12 years to realise there's expensive stuff on the wall. <laughs> and then once they realised, they disappeared over, over, over an evening. Oh, God. I can't go inside the ring road ever after saying that. Can I? I'm going to get... I'm going to get lynched. Go on, sorry, Richard, you were saying. No sunken gardens here, Paul. Go back to Blackpool. All <laughs> seaside towns have got sunken gardens up and down the promenade. Well, yeah, um, we've got them everywhere. We've also got little sort of ornamental lakes coloured the same colour as you get on the river right in Blackpool Pleasure Beach. They dye, <laughs> they dye it like a deep blue. And Elsa. amazingly, the ducks can still drink from it, you know. So, Look, blank concrete is an excellent Banksy canvas. If you erect a blank concrete wall with no other function, you're kind of inviting Banksy to come along, aren't you, and make it a you are, extremely yes. valuable yes. artwork. It's practical, Paul. Anyway, so Jack is an aspiring or a wannabe architect who's actually an engineer. Uh, making this film the most extreme episode of Grand Designs I've ever seen. <laughs> He doesn't really settle on a design for the house, does he? It changes several times. I would say it's mostly pretty modernist, though, his take. He builds it in brick first, and he's dissatisfied with that and knocks it down. And then he starts with the, the wood framing, which is a common construction technique in the United States. Less well, so. they have tornadoes. Yeah, Well done, yeah. United States. <laughs> Lars von Trier has a kind of directorial flourish where he likes to divide his work up into different sections, doesn't he? He does rather. In Dogville, he did it in a number of chapters. A number of annoying chapters, yeah. In the house that Jack built, it's characterised as five incidents Incidents. over a 12-year period. I think Jack sees them each as a kind of work of art. Yes, very definitely. And throughout it all, we hear him speaking with... Well, you might call a narrator, but obviously he's not a narrator because he's speaking with the main character. Yeah, Virgil. I think by the end of the movie, we're given to understand that, yeah, after his death, he's in the afterlife and he's speaking with Virgil, who is the guide to the afterlife, mm-hmm. who he calls Verge. Now, Jack has the conception of heaven and hell being the same place, you see. So, Why does he think that? I don't know. I think this is uh, Lars trying to give a relatively accurate take on typical uh, serial serial killer thinking, I think, isn't it? Well, he's right, though, isn't he? Oh, dear, I'm, I'm outing myself as a serial killer suddenly. <laughs> well, I, I think it's the idea that they often have a quite specious view of a natural world order that they manage to justify through abstraction. Uh, and that feeds into the various other aspects of their personality. Uh, when he, I mean, Jack is showing cards that are supposed to illustrate his various symptomatic traits, if you like, uh, you know, including egotism and uh, superior language and uh, 
and artists and various, various stuff. He also tortures a frog, I think, or a little duck as a child by cutting off its legs. I think this is the McDonald Triangle, which has been shown to have no empirical basis. But I, so <laughs> Lars has definitely done his oh, homework. You got a this. message? I have. Sorry, I'll let me mute that. He's definitely done his homework on this. I think you know any psychiatrist watching this would say, yeah, you know, this is. Uh, this is a film that approaches our contemporary understanding of, of, of not necessarily the motivations, but the mindset of people that, you know, indulge in serial killing. So so much to pick up on there. I, mean, I, I can't remember whether we've talked about McDonald Triangle before, but is this the idea that serial killers have often... Bedwet, tortured animals, torture animals, something yeah. else. I can't remember the something else. It's perhaps not surprising that people with no empathy or compulsion about hurting people have also hurt animals. That sort yeah. of stands to reason, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But what's the missing bit of the, that equation that is that people skip over all the time is uh, the, the, we would need to look for people who hurt animals but would never hurt a person. And that's a constituency that is not well investigated because... Mm-hmm. Hurting animals is also seen as reprehensible by many people. Yeah. Uh, so people won't freely own up to that. It seems to me obvious that there must be many people who would fall into that category, who would never hurt a person, but would quite happily hurt an animal. Um, and might even take pleasure in hurting animals, but it doesn't mean... It's not a slippery slope, is it? Uh, and it's not a guarantee. That's the whole point. The second thing is, you know, uh, it's quite common for children to torture animals anyway. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, yeah, I, I can, I can cer- certainly remember torching gr- green fly or something when I was when I was a kid. <laughs> or ants with magnifying glasses. Etc. Yeah, no, exactly. It's common, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Kids it's do very that common. Yeah. No, so the other thing I was going to say about that was heaven and hell, right? So yeah, if there was a heaven as is described, it's a bit of a cliche to say that it sounds incredibly boring, doesn't it? You know, just yeah. hanging around, chilling out with the dullest people, whereas in hell all the interesting people go and have crazy sex parties. You know, heaven does sound dull on that scale. Even in the best conception of heaven, right? If I if I have any relatives who were such well-observing Christians that they've gone to heaven, yeah, and they were hoping to see me there, they're going to be very disappointed. I'm certainly not going to be in heaven. I can't possibly be true. And so they would be faced with an eternity of never being able to see me and knowing that I'm being tormented and tortured forever. Yes. That doesn't sound like heaven for any normal sane person. The only solution that a theist could come up with at this point is that their God would delete their memory of me from their heads, which is a weird kind of uh, authoritarian you know, mind control dystopia, isn't it? That can't. But if you spend time with Richard, not necessarily undesirable outcome. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that was just flippant. I'm sorry. The um, twist, Paul, is that you're already in hell. That's the twist, isn't it? You don't need to tell me that, Richard. Forced every week to, to do this podcast. No, no, the podcast is a light relief for the rest of my life, Richard. Please be assured of that. Okay, so. Uh, yeah, so I, I kind of agree with you all that. You know, I, I don't think that his worldview is necessarily 
more primitive or, or or more barbaric than any other conception of, of good or evil. It's just rather the fact what's I think what uh, Lars has observed here is that he's obviously twisting events to match to 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 match his mindset and to match his worldview. I think is how he differs from how the rest of us might look at these things. Not the conclusions he comes to, but the way he gets there. Yeah. Jack is played by Matt Dillon. Brilliantly. Verge, initially just a voice, but later we do see him, played by Bruno Gantz. Yes. Do you know who Bruno Gantz has No idea, but famous? I did read the list of things he's been in, including, weirdly, some like really contemporary stuff. I think he's most famous because he's internet famous, because uh, he became an internet meme for his work on a very particular film. He starred in a film called Downfall, which is the story of the last days of Hitler in Hitler's bunker. Wow. And Bruno played Hitler himself. Wow. Quite brilliantly, by the way. Have you not seen Downfall? Hitler, no, I haven't, but Hitler makes, Hitler and his cronies make a, make an appearance in this one. Hmm. As, yeah. You know, as part of the inner dialogue of Jack's justification for what he does and why he does it. Maybe we should put Downfall on the list of films. Then, Let's put that on there. Yeah, Downfall. How depressing is it, Richard? How depressing is it? Well, it's a story of Hitler's bunker at the last days of the World War Two. You know, you don't okay. get much much more low key than that, do you? Although some okay. of the staff do escape, I think. Welcome to Drive By Sellafield, where we recycle <laughs> filmic nuclear material. Now, Incident One, in which Jack, our architect, comes serial killer. I thought this is the best incident, but continue. He he's driving along in his bright red van. By the way, brilliant use of colour. I don't know why Lars decided to uh, shackle himself to black and white for Dogville, other than some kind of pretentiousness, because he's really good. This was superbly directed. This is sumptuous, yeah. you know. I mean, yeah. I can't fault his direction on this in this movie. He passes a woman who has broken down and has got a flat tyre or something. Uma Thurman, I think. It is Uma Thurman. Wow, Paul, that's like the first time you've ever, <laughs> you've ever clocked an actor. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> I'm getting She's there, aren't I? Slowly. Like a snail. Go on. She's got a bright red jack, but it's broken. A car jack, that oh, is. Oh, yeah. This is very significant. It's interesting, isn't it? Jack and jack. It's clever. Maybe maybe stupid, but I liked it. Uh, so he drives but, uh, her. Yeah, she has to kind of beg him or coerce him to driving but, but her. Can I just interrupt? Well, I love the dark comedy that's going on here. She's egging no. him. She, she starts yeah. a conversation. Like, you might be a serial killer, and she's like purposefully, or maybe she's semi-purposefully, or semi-consciously egging him on and saying all those kind of things that you wouldn't say to somebody you know has a very fragile ego. Like, <laughs> oh, well, you could be a serial killer. But you're just not man enough to do it, kind of stuff. And it's so I love this incident, this incident because it's just hilarious, you know. And yeah, the, I mean, the movie just becomes gruesome. But at this point, we haven't seen any murders, so at this point, it's just funny. I found anyway. Yeah, it's it's a shock when he snaps with her goading and takes the newly repaired Jack and smashes Uma Thurman's face in with it. And Virgil says, it's unfortunate, but she was a really annoying woman. (laughs) (laughs) And she was. I mean, she would irk anybody. She was just, like, so sort of demanding. Needling, yeah. 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 
Well, it turns out that Jack has rented or bought an industrial unit, mm-hmm. a walk-in freezer in a you know rundown industrial bit of town. And of course, it's the 1970s. There's no CCTV. You know, it's it's a monitored out there. So it's an ideal place to store, say, a cadaver of a murder victim. <laughs> and he drags Uma Thurman's corpse in there, and he puts it in the freezer. There's also, apparently, he bought with the freezer a whole load of frozen pizzas, which are stacked up. <laughs> it was funny at the beginning of this movie, wasn't it? It was. Only one of the damn things he says. And there's also, weirdly, a door he can't open in this yeah. unit. Yeah. Which is heavy symbolism of some kind that yes. I failed to really understand. Rather like that old Freudian stuff, like, imagine a house, the basement is your sexuality. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. But Lars know. knows what he's doing. It here. is, yeah, it I mean, is a psychological study. Yeah. yeah, he goes back and he hides the car as well. Although, you know, let's get it. I mean, it's not a police procedural here. We're not going to find police tracking Jack down at every. What's every the 1970s? Time, you know, I mean, no. we, we're only just realizing how many people were murdered in the 1970s. I think <laughs> uh, a lot. Incident number two. Yes. Now this is just more terrifying. It is terrifying, yeah. He's praying on the a ending. lonely lady. The ending, uh, as we see her dragged. Well, we'll get to that to to the uh, to the lockup. But what's interesting here is uh, Lars's little uh, watercolor sketch of how Jack is quite happy to lie and to riff on his lies. He's not very good at it, though, is he? He's not good at it, but it's that sort of serial killer confidence that kind of carries him through. Yeah, he's tenacious. Just he's tenacious. tenacious. He doesn't really and, give up. And so somehow she lets him in the house, even though she knows she shouldn't do it against a better judgment. He's visiting the house. Ding dong. She, this woman answers. He's assessed that she's alone. I think they have a conversation about a husband passing away or something. He's posing as a policeman. Mm. She asks for a badge. And at this point, he, <laughs> he makes just spins some terrible ridiculous. Lie. Just so see-through, yeah. Uh, it's been, it's gone away for cleaning or something, or to have uh, to have a new citation added. No citation, like you have citations on your badge. And then he says, "Oh, by the way, I was lying about that. Actually, I'm an insurance salesman. Uh, we're told to say that spiel. What I can get you is twice your pension since your husband's death if you go through the police department." She crumbles at that. She yeah. she she didn't go for the fake authority thing, but as soon as money was offered. So I guess he found her weakness. Perhaps. He was clever because he, he he covered up his lies with, I, I don't know if he did it intentionally, but by revealing his old self-interest, you know, I was lying in order to get more money mm. from you by making a sale. And she kind of bought that, didn't she, you see? So it was clever in a certain sort of way. In due course, once he's inside, he kills her. This is horrible, isn't Horrific. it? Horrific. I couldn't watch it. I had to skip bits of it. Awful. Yeah. I, I didn't feel good at this point. I felt in some way that Lars was almost celebrating what he was doing. I, I didn't enjoy this at all. He is, I'm going to use this word, he's a sort of pornographic director, isn't he? It, or, or maybe it's just very dispassionately observed, but it, it, uh, if that's the cold treatment he gave it, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it as a viewer. But again, I mean, it, it, it does show the tenacious and daredevil aspects of a serial killer. Which I think this moment is how he gets his OCD cured, isn't it, really? In that, you know, it's such a close call with the uh, patrolling neighbourhood police officer that somehow 
he kind of sails through it and uh, with the terrible ending where he's actually got her tied to the back of his van as the police officer is inspecting the back of the van but it's, you know she's she's in the grass verge somewhere and then he speeds off with drags her all the way back to the lockup but when she gets back of course you know she's only got half a face left it just grotesque. It's gruesome, yeah. Now, you mentioned OCD. I think he'd said something about this earlier, but we hadn't seen much evidence. But in this particular crime, as soon as he's killed this woman, he's taken a picture of a body. He seems Mm. to like to pose the bodies and take pictures with them. And then he keeps going back in the house. So every time he gets in the car to try and leave, he has a vision of being in that house. And like lifting a bit of furniture or a rug up and there being blood soaking under there. And he goes back and he cleans and, you know, he'll adjust the picture and then wipe the fingerprints down. And then he goes back to the car and then he goes back in. And as you say, he keeps doing that until he's very, very, very... Well, he he's, ap- he's not caught by the policeman. The policeman speaks to him whilst he's outside. In fact, the policeman goes inside, doesn't he? Mm. And he makes out like... That he was visiting the house, but she wasn't there. And, and then he does that wonderful reverse psychology where he kind of did. He, I think he's learning how to do this, where he kind of like he's over helpful and he really wants the police policeman to escalate this and say this. She's yes. not. Yeah, yeah. She she's gone missing. It's really serious. And of course, the policeman's like, "Get out my face, you busy body. Just just leave." And then he's free to leave, kind of thing. So, so yeah. He gets back, as you say, with this corpse he's been dragging behind him. And it's disintegrated and, you know, been ground down on the road. And there's a blood trail leading all the way down the road, right back to his place. And it's sort of obvious, you know, everyone is assuming, oh, you know, they're bound to catch him. And then the rain starts to fall. Really, you know, heavy torrential downfall, washing the blood away. He got away with it. And at this point, we see him uh, standing in front of a mirror, practicing facial expressions. <laughs> Do psychopaths normally accept their diagnosis? Oh, I don't know about that. That was something that was mentioned. Verge says that, doesn't he, I think? It's unusual for a psychopath to accept their own diagnosis. I think that they don't. I think they think... I think it's almost unheard of, actually, yeah. Because there are some who, like, you know, uh, some people, some psychopaths that do accept their diagnosis, and often that realization has prompted them to become therapists, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I was watching one or two of them, and, you know, they say, I can't be cured. I am a psychopath. I'm never going to, never going to change. But I can help other people realize that they are the same and can never and can never change either, you see. So it's quite interesting. So yeah, I think I think that's observationally correct. They they generally do not accept either the symptomology or the overall diagnosis. Yeah. Episode or uh incident three, is this with his girlfriend? I think it is, isn't it? Uh n- no. Um incident three <laughs> No. Um, we'll come to incident three. You have skipped over the flashback to his childhood, which you mentioned earlier when he cuts the duckling's leg off. But it starts with him by a field. And I think they're trying to set it in a time and place, as it were. And there's five people cutting grass with scythes. 
Yes, idyllic late summer labour kind of thing. Uh, and it's very bucolic and it's it's beautiful and tranquil. And he takes the opportunity to to cut off a dog's leg, you know. Very strange. What I thought about this is where do you find five people who know how to use a scythe? I know how to use a scythe. Do you? Yeah. Where we used to you... cut our back garden with a scythe. <laughs> they were using it correctly. You don't cut a gri- you, you don't cut against like you don't the blade just goes kind of almost on itself in in a circular arc. Yeah, you don't actually cut any width of grass. You just cut a very thin area as as it goes around in a circle. Right. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that normal that people yes. didn't have instead of a flymo, you had a scythe. <laughs> we had a flymo too, actually. The cheap ones that you could kill yourself with. Oh, but a scythe is perfectly safe. <laughs> I don't know, but me and my father had a thing about planting British wildflowers and cutting the grass with size. And also we had a little stone compost area too. We kind of went, I used to spray the little stone wall we built with, with fertilizer to make the algae grow in it quicker. Yeah. I don't know. We, we had a, we had a Prince Charles moment in ni- mid 1980s. <laughs> two of us together. Yeah. Well, that's quite an image. Thank you for that. These little flashback or exp- explanatory montages, there are several. There's one where he's talking about church architecture and uh, pointed pointed arches rather than round arches suddenly allowing a greater space. And that's to justify mm. his first incident where he, he smashes a jack into somebody's face as if this is like a new church. Church architecture allows for a greater appreciation of nature. There he talks about something else. Uh, Blake, the poetry of Blake and the tiger and the lamb. Yes, he does. Yeah, uh, as if the lamb's sacrifice was the poetry of Blake. And uh, Virgil points out that actually that's not what Blake's talking about. But of course, he he doesn't accept. He talks about street lamps and the front shadow being his joy and the back shadow being pain. And if you're between two lamps, which are his murders, then the pain suddenly becomes more intense uh, as you approach the second lamp. Okay, so what's this interesting is great is, imagery. It Great is. imagery. But it's also, I think, how psychopaths, you know, they, they construct these quite deductively watertight representations, abstract representations of the justifications for their motivation, you know. Uh, and so I thought that all was very well observed. Do they use the phrase Mr. Sophistication at some point? They do, yes. Is that like his, uh, his killer name? <laughs> but no, incident number three, Paul, to remind you, and yeah. I'm sure it'll click when I tell you, is... Hunting with the family. Oh dear, yeah. This I, I, I this was just horrific. And he also justifies this in terms of you know if if you're gonna if you're gonna kill a mother a mother a mother doe is what we call it. I don't know what you call a female deer. Uh, and her two her doe two. a deer a female deer Ray a drop of golden sun. If you Me, if you're gonna if you're gonna I shoot myself. a doe. With, Far, a long, long way to run. With with a powerful shooting rifle. So, and her a two, pulling thread. And the two foals. Are they foals? I don't know what you call baby. Tea, a drink of German bread. Uh, then you should <laughs> shoot the foals. You should shoot them foals first and then kill the mother, you see. Because uh-huh. if you kill the mother and the fawns survive, you're going to be cruel because the foals will not be able to survive on their own. So, again, just ultimately twisted logic. I mean... But there we go. 
but he applies this to human beings. His he girlfriend he's, he's out. and his his two children. But it's not his children, is it? I think. Oh, it's his girlfriend's children. He puts. He gives everyone red hats. You know, good hunting. What's the word? <laughs> policy to avoid being shot. Again, brilliant use of colour, though. And they're out out there in this kind of Practice edge ground, of the wood kind of area. Yeah, with with a lot of targets and a hunting tower, a hide or whatever you call it. I don't know what they call it. But yeah, he, he goes up with one of the kids, doesn't he? And they shoot a bit with the rifle. And then For the watchtower, at some yeah. point, he starts shooting them, doesn't he? I think there's a quite a harsh transition where they're being all nice. Yeah. And then suddenly he's giving them, you know, seconds to run away or something. So incredibly, you know, he shoots kids in the head and the legs. But the weird thing is he then, you know, gets the corpses and puts them on the picnic picnic rug and has her sit down and eats a picnic with them. <laughs> uh, just, It's just so awful to watch. If I was in that situation and he was in the tower giving me a count of 12, I would run under the tower. I think we're to presume that she was just in shock, though, wasn't she? Well, okay. And I guess it's only a temporary solution at best, isn't it? But he'd have to come down the ladder to get you, and you could maybe poke him off the ladder somehow. So, anyway, do you ever think? Do you ever think how would you survive, Paul? Is that not, never occurred to you? you always, never occurred to me. No, you're just the kid in the red hat, are you? I am the kid in the red hat. Yeah. <laughs> and it, the worst thing about this is, of course, like all of the bodies, he's going to freeze them, and he sometimes he likes to take the bodies out sometimes and photograph them. But with the with the kid, the younger kid, I think, grumpy, Mr. grumpy or something, he actually does taxidermy on him, and sets him up with this hideous, grotesque, grinning face, like a kind of horrible doll, which appears a couple of times later in the movie and is properly horrible. <laughs> I mean, this is real Lars von Trier stuff, isn't it? By the way, freezing bodies is something that one of the worst serial killers on. If, if he's even called that. Um, but that's what he used to do. He was called the Iceman. And he would freeze his victims. And if you think about it, of course, by freezing the victim, you're completely destroying the ability for them to figure out the time of death. Ah. Which is normally done forensically by, you know, the state of decomposition yeah. fundamentally. Or if it's close to the time, even the temperature of the body. Incident number four, Paul. Now, this is the girlfriend that he really fancies. Okay. But as he points out, she isn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. She's a bit Uh, simple. It's played by Paul. Not Uma Thurman. Not Uma Thurman, correct. Go two for two. (laughs) Thank you. It's played by an actress called Riley Keough. Oh, that one. Yeah, of course. Very famous. She's not that famous. Except when you know, I didn't mean it like that. Except when you know that she's Elvis and Priscilla Presley's granddaughter. Whoa! Okay, so yeah. famous then. And he tells her that he's killed sixty people, so he's coming clean with his girlfriend at this point. And then we get we get the Manchester Metropolitan Police or whatever it's called. What? Not responding to 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 help to help victims. At the moment, oh, she runs like, away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the moment, like, on the Manchester Police, I don't know what they're, they're called, the Manchester Constabulary. They're not a constabulary in, in metropolitan area, are they? They're trying to deal with the public relations disaster of them ignoring all kinds of requests to intervene, aren't they? But, 
I hadn't noticed that. Have Particularly in domestic or, you know, uh, female-related uh, crime incidents. Oh, dear. Well, this is the 1970s, so, of course, you know, a drunken woman saying, help, my partner's crazy and is about to kill me. Uh, the police officer who just happens to be outside. Well, again, this is this is a true crime story. There have been, I imagine there's been several, but there's some famous victims of uh, serial killers, you know, ran away, found the police. I think <gasps> one of them... Oh, wait a minute. Okay, now, the the taxi rapist, John, what's his name, in London? Oh, God. He, he had that spiel where he, he, you know, ladies were getting his taxi late at night and he'd offer them a champagne flute and say, look, I've just won £100,000. Would you celebrate with me? Of course, it's drugged. And then, you know. Oh, God. He would rape them in the back of the taxi. Over 100, there were, there was, there were three reports where the women escaped knew who he was, reported to the police, and they did nothing about it. And those reports e- weren't even reviewed, even even when, you know, the Sun and the Daily Mirror were trying to, you know, were, were making this top page, front page news. I mean, similar things happened with the uh, Leeds Yorkshire Ripper, didn't they? In terms of, they were really strong Leeds. They interviewed him three times, I think, questioned him, and nothing was done about it. Anyway, sorry, Rich, you were saying. No, well, the same same issue. This one, what I was thinking of is is in the US, and it was I can't remember which serial killer it is. Was it John Wayne Casey or Jeffrey Dahmer? He's the one who preyed on on young gay guys. Yeah, yeah. And one guy was still alive, obviously, and escaped from his place, found a policeman, but the serial killer caught up with them. And said that they had like a tiff or whatever, and the policeman was uncomfortable with the homo homosexual kind of yes. thing, and the possible. Yeah, I think he was assuming it was a BDSM thing, and he basically, I think he either gave him back to the serial killer or even escorted him back. Wow! So Dennis Nielsen, you know the guy. Dennis Nielsen was that him? No, I mean, also the same happened with Dennis Nielsen with, uh, yeah. in, in terms of the gay community in London. They went round to his house. Three times, I think, because boyfriends have been reported being strangled, well, being drugged, waking up in the bath, being suffocated and drowned. And reports were filed and just dismissed, you know. Mm. So, uh, so, yeah, obviously, crimes against women and crimes against the gay community were, were, were just viewed as, as not crimes, I think, in the 70s and 80s. This is horrible and horrible because it's kind of true, isn't it? Yeah. He's actually sort of torturing her in a way, isn't he? He's, he's drawing around her boobs with a yeah. pen, clearly with the intention of cutting her boobs off, which he yeah. does. Yeah. Oh. And he winds up later in the film, doesn't he, using it as a purse. That's right, yeah. Not before putting her through a 20 questions quiz to prove how stupid she is. And he puts one of them on the cop car's window, actually. That's how that kind of murder is ending, isn't it? There's all that, and uh, of course, the police officer says, you two are drunk, get back indoors, kind of thing, and uh, she meets a sticky end. Number five, I think, is the weirdest one, isn't it? Where, I mean, he's unraveled, he's become too confident. Yeah, Yeah. All kinds of nonsense happens. I mean, he's somehow managed to put eight males in the uh, freezer, Maybe in the cold area. I don't know how many it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And He's got all quite a few, yeah. They're all... Lined up head to head. Russian roulette with an it, egg is, gun. Is this, the bit where you, is this the bit where you stop watching, Paul? 
Yeah. You couldn't see this anymore because of Amazon. No, I, I got this far, but I, I wasn't. I was watching through sort of through 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 slitted sort of uh, fingers at this point because it was just too gruesome. <laughs> this film's broken you. So his idea was it's something about um, some soldiers who were told to do genocide. Or, I don't. I'm not sure it was the Nazis <sighs> or somewhere else, or Pol yes. Pot or something. But in order to conserve ammunition. That they were apparently lining prisoners up head to head and shooting them with one bullet, and he wants to replicate uh, that or exceed uh, their their best or something. I see. So, so he's got these victims alive, and he's chained them up head to head in in a line <laughs> in his freezer. Now the dark comedy is the box of bullets. It says it's the right caliber, but it's not. So he has he to needs- head back to the gun shop. Yeah, he needs full metal jacket ammunition. That's uh, jacket with a okay. full copper. Jacket around it, which is what are you, you're required to use in war by the military, yeah. as opposed to lead bullets or ones with a, a slit in the top of them, which shatter on impact and make a much bigger wound, which is apparently against the Geneva Convention. So for soldiering, you're supposed to use full metal jacketed ammunition, which stays in one one piece and goes clean through, as it were. And he thinks he's going to need FMJ ammunition. And in fact, his victim, who's an ex-soldier, tells him that it's not FM, uh, uh, full metal jacket ammunition when he looks at it, doesn't he? Yeah. Thinking he'll buy some time. And he does, in effect. But when he's got the bullets, eventually, after an argument with the ammunition shop owner, he finds that he can't <laughs> sight down his the optics of his rifle because he's too close to the subject, to the the prisoners, as it were. So he has to move the tripod he's mounted his rifle back, and he opens that mysterious door that we've seen from the very first incident. That's right, yeah. And in the door, behind the door, we find a large empty room, and in the corner sits Verge, his interlocutor. Played by Bruno Gantz. And so I suppose we're in the bit of his mind where his conscience or whatever lives, whatever Verge represents. Has he escaped from the guy who holds him at gunpoint at this point or not? Oh, when did that happen? The old guy. The old guy makes a phone call and says, look, I've caught Jack. Oh, yeah, that's right. Did he go there to get bullets? To get the bullets. Somehow got caught. He talks his way through it and has a drink with him, and then just suddenly stabs him through the neck uh, yeah. with a sharp knife. Yeah. And he puts yeah. his uh, robe on, doesn't he? And then, of course, he the police turn himself. up, and he shoots the policeman and takes the police car back to his hideout. So at this point, I think it's inevitable the police are going to be trying to be cutting through the steel door to the to the refrigerated lock-in whilst right. he's having a conversation, extended conversation with Virgil. You could easily imagine that he's perhaps already dead at this point. Yes. You know? But now at this point in the film, he is suddenly moved to perhaps complete his architectural dreams. Well, Virgil <laughs> says, weren't you supposed to be building a house? And so he takes the mostly frozen corpses <laughs> and he starts kind of wiring them together or connecting them up in this big space that he's discovered. Grotesquely, darkly humorous moment. In the shape of a house, like a Wendy House style thing. 
And he manages to do all of this before the cops um, have cut their way through the heavy door of the walk-in freezer. And he's, though, already going inside his newly built house of corpses because there's a kind of trapdoor in the house which he goes down with Verge. Into the afterlife, presumably. Well, this is where now we're in Dante's Inferno, the, the nine circles of hell, as you say. Before that, 20 minutes before, they'd been talked about Hitler's architect who designed the Third Reich buildings by looking at the ruins of Roman... Yes, by looking at the ruins of Roman, classical, great Roman and Greek architecture of antiquity and noting that different materials would leave a different kind of patina to ruins 2,000 years onwards. And therefore, the different parts of the Third Reich, different parts of the same building, were, were built to different levels of sophistication in terms of their longevity in order to appear like wonderful ruins in the future. And I can't help thinking that somehow there's some sort of reflective thing going on here with the corpses. They also have a bit where they talk about how dessert wines are made, which is yes. fascinating. Ice wines, yeah. Now, can I can I just get on to this? No matter how you pronounce German wines, okay? German wines are superlative, and German ice wines are just fabulous. Anyway, sorry. Uh, and they also talk about Stukas dive bombers and the yes the Jericho's trumpet on them, uh, the stereotypical war film noise of a dive bomber is the sound of a Stuka, which is not the normal sound of the plane. It's actually a sound of a siren that's stuck on the plane deliberately. It's an act of psychological warfare, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So it's eerie and effective, isn't it? And the end of the film is a sort of, um, a very sort of brief retelling of Dante's Inferno. Now, I I, I always used to think that that was called Dante's Inferno, but it's actually the Divine Comedy, isn't it, the book? That, that poem. Is yes, Divine Comedy. Yeah. But I think it's three parts. The first one, called Dante's Inferno, I think deals with hell. The second one deals, I think, with purgatory, and the third one deals with heaven. I've only ever been exposed to the first one. Which sounds far and away the more more interesting one, for the same reasons that hell is more interesting than heaven. Uh, yeah, are you familiar with uh, the poem, Paul? I was, but I'm not anymore. It's a bit ecclesiastical, that's a problem, isn't it? Yeah. Like a lot of art, which is inspired by or all about religion, it's it's a bit thin, really, isn't it? This is what Virgil says about Jack, though. You know, he's lofty, but somewhat contemptible aspirations for greatness. You know, he's, he's, he's failed his architecture and he's failed in morality, hasn't he? You see? So I don't know what we're supposed to necessarily draw from that. But it is very well sketched, I think, whatever whatever Lars is trying to say, I think he says it very well. But it's quite difficult. It's quite densely packed. It's quite difficult to digest within... Although it's quite a long film, just over two hours, I think there's so much going on that it's the kind of film that would benefit from a second viewing. Whether or not you'd want to view it a second time is a But it's powerful. Uh, and at the very end, Jack and Virgil, I think they've gone through eight circles of hell or something, and they're talking about what's down below... And Jack glances over at a staircase that I think Verge says leads all the way up. It seems to be an escape from hell. But a bridge has been out for, you know, a millennia or something, Verge tells him. Jack thinks he might be able to climb around the outside of the cave and escape. 
And Verge says, well, many have tried, but nobody has ever succeeded. Of course, Jack's hubris, um, which is punished by Nemesis, as Verge says at one point, uh, he can't stop himself but try to climb out, and he obviously falls. Thus, falls into the clutches of the devil himself, we presume. So, and I, I didn't get to that last little bit, okay, uh, because of the joys <laughs> of my streaming quality from Amazon Prime. But I, I think I were I, you I watching can... it in a car? Is that the problem? No, no. I was, I was actually. Well, I've tr- I was, but then I brought it home and tried to watch it this evening, the last ten minutes, and only got three minutes in. So it's something to do with Amazon Prime, not with my internet connection. So we, we've got to the end of this uh, movie without major trauma on my part. I don't know about you, Richard. But it's time for scores, is it? Surely not. It is time for scores. So, well, let's start with acting as we often do. Well, can I just say, superlative performance from Matt Dillon. Uh, really, really convincing. Not just a Brat Pack uh, actor. Really versatile. Uh, very dedicated actor. Real depth. Really, really method acted his way into this one, I guess. Oh, let's hope not. You think he actually killed oh, well. someone? No, no, no. <laughs> method acted. <laughs> reality act is way into it hopefully I think the supporting cast are amazing as well Uma Thurman is brilliant yes Verge is great Bruno Gantz you know, also the uh, his girlfriend the uh, granddaughter of Elvis Presley I think, I think they all put up a great performance for me then I would give this an 8 for acting I'm going to go 9 on the acting I, I thought Ooh. it was superlative so let's talk about plot and Script. Lars von Trier took this from idea to story to screenplay to direction. I think he's done a really good job. It's not slow at any point. It works as almost a Hitchcockian film, I think, you know, as, as a commercial piece of cinema. But it also I, works. I've got a feeling as, he might have even used that term. I think he might right. have said it was Hitchcockian. Yeah. It is quite Hitchcockian, I think, you know. It kind of really, you know, like Psycho, it really pulls strings. About our perceptions of of criminal madness, but at the same time, it has real depth. I think so. I think it's very well played as a plot, and it's very well placed. I'm going to score it an eight, Richard. It's easily it's easily worth an eight. It's it's very very watchable, even though it's quite challenging at times. There's no nothing is held back in terms of gore. And you know the, the the graphic violence. But you might say that's not believable. That's what serial killers do. So I, at no point is it necessarily exaggerated. And his state of mind, I think, is quite an accurate depiction of, of how of how they think. That's difficult to know, isn't it? Yeah, they're often quite emotionally flat, aren't they? They're often quite self-contained. So you know, even during not rehabilitation, they don't try to rehabilitate them, do they? But during the therapy they undergo, they they don't necessarily give much out about their inner life. And often their inner life is quite sparse and barren anyway, isn't it? Whether or not you think this is particularly accurate in its, in terms no, of its betrayal. But it's it, very it, evocative. It, it is very evocative. That's the point. It's just like Jack's incidents, which he views as a work of art. This film you know, does that same for this whole piece, doesn't it? It, it is a work of art. And it's quite often beautifully shot. I think there's no point where it's egregiously wrong in terms of its depiction, you see. Whereas I think, you know, uh, Requiem, for a, Requiem for a Dream, in terms of how they depicted the liberal use of e- ECT, 
I think that was egregiously wrong. Even there was a lot of liabilities taken. It seems. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. It was was an extreme version of. It depicted the illnesses in well, not in an unsympathetic way, but perhaps an exaggerated way. Is Lars von Trier saying that all people with OCD are serial killers? I don't know about that. I don't know. I don't think they do have OCD typically, do they? They're very methodical, but I'm not sure that they're. I'm. I, that's more. I think that was more about Jack's inner voice. You know, his critical inner voice saying, "You know, you're neurotic. You've got OCD." But I don't think he necessarily had those things, did he? Well, he cured it anyway, didn't he, with his yeah. uh, murder spree? So. <laughs> his murder spree. Yeah. Hooray! You know, maybe a new form of therapy for the rest of us. So, so just generally, I thought it was. It was. It rang true in an artistic sense. And so I'll give it. I'll give it an eight easily. Okay. How about therefore chilling atmosphere? How are we yeah. going to score it for chilling atmosphere? The funny thing is, it's almost—it's quite comforting, isn't it? It's, yeah. You, your point of view is not with the victims. It's not like a horror movie running away from the serial killer. There's grotesquerie, sure, and you're going to have to deal with the weirdness that comes out of that. But ultimately, you're following Jack, so it is an exploration of morals, isn't it? Like Dogville, actually, is a morality story, an investigation of mm-hmm. that. That's what we're really doing, I think, is trying to understand the morality of what's happening. And also, there's something about the, you know, the everyday banality of the, the violence that occurs ultimately. You know, the woman in the car getting her face smashed in, the woman answering the door to an insurance salesman. and There's a lot in this film. Could I watch it again? Would I really want to? Because it's quite <laughs> challenging. I don't know. I think I'm going to have to go seven here. Yeah. I, I think Lars is... Really, really quite dark humour. Yes. Kind of shines through in a certain sort of way. It does. The black sun. uh, And kind of makes it more palatable without necessarily diminishing its impact. So I'm going to give it a seven also for, like, chilling atmosphere. Copycat. Okay. (laughs) I mean, we could do something like special effects or something like that. Or, you know, psychological accuracy or that kind of thing. I don't know. Like scientific accuracy? I don't think that's what he's doing, is it, though? No, he's not trying to. No. Uh, so I think we just go straight to an overall score. Overall score, yeah. Overall score. Difficult, isn't it? Again, it is. it's another film. I don't like Requiem from a Dream. I don't I don't really know who I'd recommend it to. I have to compare it with other movies of its genre, like Portrait of a Serial Killer, Henry, uh, which right. was the late 80s one. Very famous, yeah. like the first POV yeah. of that era, you know, where, ne- yeah. where it's deeply challenging because, of course... I mean, there was no hero or or villain really. It was just presented from his perspective, and so it was 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 shocking for that reason. But it didn't. I mean, comparing this to that, this has a lot more depth. I think it's a strong seven from me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'd be tempted to say some of the parts are equal to its final score and score it an eight. However. It isn't enjoyable. It's really icky to watch. I think you probably <laughs> do grow from it, as you were saying, like Requiem for a Dream. It's, it's not, it's not art for entertainment, is it? It's art for contemplation and potentially, potentially some, you know, some sort of personal growth. Having watched it, uh, but it's just a bit too icky, really, to be mm. to be watchable. And for that reason, I'm going to have to score it a seven rather than an eight. All right, but a strong score nonetheless. Listen, as he said, it's much better than Dogville, isn't it? Oh, infinitely so, yes. Yeah. Surprisingly so, in some ways. All right, that'll do for this week. 
What do we do? That will do for this week, yeah. What do we do next week? Okay, I've got two choices for you. We've got oh, Bound, which I think we mentioned maybe in the podcast. Yeah, that was your white podcast. whale. Yeah. My white whale, thank you. Okay, white whale, earwig. earwig. No, what they call earworm. Earworms for music. Well, like white eye whales. Yeah. White whales or eyeworms for films. Bound is my eyeworm or white whale. I'd love to see it again. I've kind of forgotten pretty much all about it, apart from a few snapshots in my mind. Or I'll offer you downfall, Richard. Take your pick. Oh, really? Mm. Threw one out there. That wasn't in the script. Okay, well, given that in these trying times... Oh, please, yes. Whatever the bloody uh, cliche is. Some relief, please. Yeah, let, let's go for something less depressing. So Absolutely. let's go for Bound. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mildly, only mildly shocking and depressing, this one. Brilliant. Okay, let's go for Bound. I think it is an exciting and occasionally humorous movie, as memory serves. So Bound it is. Until the next time. Absolutely. It's goodbye from Drive-By Cinema. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from Paul. See you in the next one. Bye-bye. Thank you.